Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, this morning we are diving back into 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, Jer started that last week. And just for a little bit of a perspective, once again, it's always incredibly helpful for me to understand sort of the big picture of what we're talking about, where it fits, how it all works out. Uh, this is a timeline we often look at here at Southridge with some of the macro things on it. First, creation. Uh, we often say God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit already exists prior to creation. Even though Jesus is born in Bethlehem, that's not the beginning of his existence. That's the beginning of his earthly existence on earth. It's not the beginning of his existence. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all exist in in Trinity out here prior to creation. They exist in joy and relationship with one another. God brings about creation to welcome us into his joy, to share his joy with us. Uh, By Genesis chapter 3, we find out that that fellowship, that joy, that presence of creation is harshly interrupted by separation of sin. Human beings choose to find life in and of themselves autonomously disconnected from God, and that throws everything into chaos. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. The consequences of separation from God are not only in our personal inner beings, they're far and wide in our planet as well. We have droughts, we have hurricanes, we have tornadoes, we have tsunamis, we have wars, we have cancer, we have diseases. All of those things are the result of creation being separated from the creator. We find out that through all of the Old Testament, God is working with a nation of Israel, primarily through Abraham's line, to bring about God's plan of restoration and redemption. God says to Abraham, Abraham, through you, I'm going to choose to bless all of the world, all nations, all languages. So that happens. Abraham lives about 2,000 years prior to the birth of Jesus. And so roughly Abraham lives as far before the birth of Jesus as we live after the birth of Jesus. Uh, B.C. A.D., Jesus comes. Uh, Jesus comes to bring about God's plan of redemption for us. Uh, He dies on the cross about 30 A.D. Uh, He ascends to heaven. The Holy Spirit descends. That's what we call Pentecost. Today, as we said, is is Pentecost Sunday. 50 days, Pentecost. Pente is 50. Uh, Pentagon, five sides. You probably are aware of that. Pentecost is 50 days after Jesus is raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells followers of Jesus to empower them, to enable them to follow after him. Uh, So we live right here in this era, and scripture says that at one point, Jesus is going to come again a second time and bring about the fullness of a new creation. That's the grand story. So we're in the series of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. That story fits in this section. Remember, uh, earlier we were in the Gospel of John. Uh, that was tucked right here, right prior to the cross. Uh, now we're in 1 Kings 18. That's tucked into the segment of history. Wh- how that works is uh, <clears throat> Moses is roughly about 1,450 uh, 1, years prior to the birth of Jesus. You have King Saul, David, and Solomon. Uh, you have the full nation of Israel formed. Eventually that becomes separated to the northern and southern kingdom sometimes called Israel and Judah. Uh, Elijah is speaking to King Ahab, who's a king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Eventually, Israel and Judah both fall. Uh, Their people get exiled to places like Assyria and Babylon. Uh, They are taken outside of the land. They're in exile. Eventually, in 500 years before the birth of Jesus, uh, they actually return back to the land. They begin to to sort of drift back into the land, and then Jesus is born again, kind of splitting B.C. and A.D. 
Now, just one other thing, um, and it's simply this. Elijah is a prophet. And so sometimes when we think of a prophet, we think primarily of a guy who maybe speaks the future. It's often when we think of or when we hear the word prophet, we think, oh, somebody who who foretells something that's going to happen. Well, that's sometimes the case. Most of the time, what prophets simply did was they were simply proclaimers of God's truth. They proclaimed the truth of God to the people of their time. Often that came in the form of a warning. Look, you're not following after God as you promised to do and as he asked you to do. So they would proclaim that into the people. Sometimes even during exile, maybe it was then proclaiming that there was hope. Uh, Often when the people of Israel were in exile, there was a sense of desperation and hopelessness. And so the prophets would say, God's plan is still on track. He's still at work. All is not lost. And so sometimes the prophets would speak words of warning. Sometimes they would speak words of hope. They would always be calling people to repentance and reconciliation with God. And so that's exactly what we find out about Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. He's going to the people of Israel And he's saying to them, you have strayed far from what you had committed to to an obedience to God. You've strayed far from that. You're worshiping other gods. You're pursuing other gods. You're no longer living and acting justly. You're off track. At the end of the passage that Jeremy was looking at last week, Here's kind of where it stands, and Caleb will come up and get ready to read the verses for this coming Sunday, this this Sunday now. Here's here's the words of Elijah. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab went, sent Word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Just before Caleb reads this, take a look at the maps on the screen. The first one kind of gives us the big picture of this story. Remember, <clears throat> uh, Elijah had gone to Samaria. That's where King Ahab was. That's where he ruled from. He declared that there would be a drought. Uh, In order to provide for Elijah, uh, Elijah hid by the Kirith Brook. Uh, God delivered him food there. Eventually, the brook dried up. He went north to the town of Zarephath. That's where this widow lady uh, provided for Elijah. Her flour didn't run out. Her oil didn't run out. So that's where he's been in Zarephath. Now, the next slide, he actually comes down to Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is tucked there right beside the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, when Caleb reads, you're going to hear about them pouring water on the altar. Your natural question would be, how are they going to get water? There's been no rain. Most likely, it's being carried from the Mediterranean Sea. We're not sure, but it's probably a likely solution. And so what Caleb is going to read is exactly right there on Mount Carmel. The people are gathered together. There's about to be the showdown. There's a lot of stuff happening here. And so lean in. It's a little bit of a longer text, and Caleb will read it for us. Chapter 18, verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophet are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered him, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And then they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. 
and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves, as for their custom, with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And they repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he had made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seeds. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near, and said to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known to this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this place may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let no one escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is sound of the rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the, on the earth, and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up, and looked, and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew back and with, grew back with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to, to the entrance of Jezreel. Thank you so much, Caleb. Uh, there's a lot happening in those verses, a ton that's happening. Uh, we could probably spend three weeks just on those verses. Uh, we want to kind of keep the series in line. And so we're just going to cover some high-level stuff uh, that we're going to pick out some highlights from it. Uh, first thing I want to get to is simply this. <clears throat> this passage is all about who the one true God is. They gather on the mountain, and Elijah's challenge is simply, let's gather together and see who the true God actually is. That's sort of a little bit of an odd question, especially in our culture, uh, because we wrestle a lot with this in our culture. Is there one true God? Are there many gods? Believe however you would want. In fact, maybe I would say this. Probably the way our culture often thinks of God is, is somewhat like we think of Christmas tree ornaments. Uh, you have your ornaments. Maybe they're hand-me-downs from the family. Maybe all of your ornaments on the Christmas tree are handmade. Uh, they're made by someone you know. They're your particular ornaments. Somebody else has their particular ornaments. Maybe it was made by their family. Maybe you purchased all of your ornaments at a store. Somebody else makes all of their ornaments. We often think of religion kind of like that, kind of like a Christmas tree ornament that you basically choose what you like and whatever your taste is, that's simply an expression of who you are, and that's how religion works. Maybe it almost works like a hobby. Some of you maybe like music. Some of you might like sports. Some of you might like gardening or hiking or being outdoors or sewing or knitting or something along those lines. That's kind of how we think of religion and God. 
that's kind of whatever connects with your personal experience, whatever might be your particular ornament, whatever might be your particular hobby, that's what's appropriate. It's kind of hard and even shocking when you come to the Scripture and the God of the Scripture, Yahweh, says, I'm the true God. And here's the deal. When he says that, he's not simply saying, he's not simply saying that I'm the true God that fills the God slice of your pie. That's often our mindset when we think of spirituality or God as a Christmas tree ornament or as a hobby. Well, kind of like choose your God that suits well for the spiritual slice of the pie of your life. You know, we all got slices of the pie of our life. We've got our business life. We've got our home life. We've got our social life. We've got our pleasure life. We've got our work life. We got all of those slices of our pie. And hey, whatever ornament or whatever hobby you want to choose to fill out the God slice of your pie, that's great because it's the God slice of the pie. Scripture doesn't approach it that way. Scripture does not say that, hey, this is the true God that fills the God slice of your pie. Instead, Scripture says, God actually created the pie. God actually created all things. The whole story belongs to him. One of the reasons why we talk about the storyline of Scripture is simply for this reason, that you and I are story-formed creatures. Uh, Someone has said that we live out of the story that we believe to be true about ourselves. That's so true. We're impacted by the story that we believe to be true about ourselves. You're a story-formed creature. You're not simply independent, isolated in a vacuum. You're you're formed, you're shaped by a story that you believe in. And so it's important that the God of the Bible is not simply a slice of the pie. The God of the Bible is actually encompasses all of reality. And maybe you think of it this way. Maybe this is helpful to me. Um, you know, you might have your phone. You might have a whole pile of apps on your phone. And maybe you use different apps for news or for watching stars, or I've got an app for like identifying birds. I've got a bunch of apps, identifying birds, tons of them, the Bible app, lots of that stuff. God is not an app on your phone, but what happens to your phone when the battery from your phone is gone? None of it works, right? It's kind of like, the, it's, it's, a, it's a crude and a rough illustration, but it's kind of like how God works. God is not simply one little religious app on your phone. God is the whole operating mechanism. God is not simply a slice of the pie. God is the whole deal. God's the creator. God's the center of everything. And so when Elijah has the showdown with the prophets of Baal, it's not say, saying, hey, Who's the religious slice of your pie? Elijah is saying, who's the God that's underneath everything? Who's the God that it all belongs to? Who's the God who's the creator? Again, maybe this feels weird to us, but we often talk about the Ten Commandments. Here's the first one. First one of the Ten Commandments you shall have no other gods before me. Me kind of look at that and say, like, really? Like, how egotistical and arrogant can God be to make the first commandment say, don't have any other gods except me? That's pretty egotistical and arrogant. But it's not. Because what God is saying is this. He's saying, if I truly am what's underneath it all, It would not be loving for me to say, worship whatever you want. Because if you worship whatever you want, then your life will be out of kilter with the way that everything is. The reason that the first commandment there is not because there's an egotistical, arrogant God. It's because that God is the creator of all things. And unless our lives are rightly aligned to him, our lives will be off kilter. Our lives won't be in sync 
with the story of the universe that is here because God created it all. <clears throat> so Elijah is saying, this is the true God. We're just going to dive mostly into this point and just a couple ways that that works out. <clears throat> Number one, if you miss the true God, one of these symptoms is you'll probably be a blaming kind of person. You'll probably be a blaming kind of person. This actually really interested me when I was just kind of like reading through the chapter. It actually happens in verses from last week. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 16 and 17, as Elijah goes to Obadiah, and Obadiah to Elijah, here's what it's, I'm sorry, to, to Ahab, here's what Obadiah says. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Fascinating, isn't it? Ahab meets Elijah, and Ahab blames his own problems on the person of Elijah. It's Ahab that has walked in disobedience. It's Ahab that has violated the covenant of God. But because Ahab is not following the true story of Scripture, he naturally blames someone else for his own dissatisfaction with the way that things are. Now, that doesn't mean that people in our lives don't wrong us. They absolutely do. They impact us. But here's the deal. Many times what we do, if we're not rightly related to God, if we don't have God at the center of our lives, we naturally blame someone else for us not having life. We naturally blame someone else for our own behaviors. We naturally blame someone else for our own lack of flourishing, our lack of joy. We do that all the time. So-and-so is the problem. Spouses do that. Friends do that. If I'm not getting life, it's somehow your fault. Why do we do that? Because we think our life is derived from someone else rather than being derived from God. <clears throat> What's another thing? Blaming. Desperation's another one. Desperation. Can you just read a couple of the verses that Caleb read? Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. Nobody responded. There was desperation. <clears throat> we're, we're determined to get life from Baal. But Baal is not responding. We're determined to get life from Baal, but Baal is not giving us life. Maybe frantic would be another one. We, we blame. We become desperate. We become frantic. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. They become frantic when their God doesn't respond. You know, sometimes I think the reason that we live in somewhat of a desperate and frantic culture relates to, partly to the fact that you realize we live as the wealthiest people this planet has literally ever seen. We have more time for pleasure than anyone who's ever lived before us. We have access to incredible things, and yet <clears throat> we're the most lonely, isolated, sad people. What does that bring? It makes us desperate. It makes us frantic because we were sure this would bring us life. This is what we've always wanted. We get to create our own truth. We get to create our own reality. We get to do it. We have more access to more things than any other people at any time in human history. And yet somehow life is still elusive to us. And it makes our culture frantic. It makes our culture desperate. It makes us blame others. I want to be careful with this. 
But, but I, I, I think this can be said. You know, our culture is extremely sexualized. And we were convinced that if we just throw off old repressive forms of sexuality and open the door wide open to ever our heart's desire, that then we'll have life. If we can determine that we are whoever we want to be, if we have total freedom to claim any identity that we want, if we can create our own truth, if we can throw off absolutely every single form of constraint, then we'll be free. Then we'll be happy. You might say this, then we'll have our bread to eat. And the problem is, we've done all of that, and we're still hungry. And that makes us angry, and it makes us desperate, and it makes us frantic. It's at least part of the reason of why our culture is where it is. It's part of why I am who I am, because I pursue things that I think are going to give me life, and when they don't, I become angry, desperate, frantic. It's not just a condition out there. It's a condition in here as well. <clears throat> Friends, the one true God, the one true God is the one that we need to worship. It's in, his, it's in him, in worshiping him as the true God that we actually have life, that we actually have freedom. Let me ask you a couple questions. Is the God you worship a hand warmer that keeps you warm, or is he a consuming fire? Is the God you worship a mantelpiece that keeps you company, or is he your master who is Lord? Is the God you worship a figurine to make you feel good, or is he your sovereign God who you bow before? Listen, friends, there's one true God, and you're not him. And whatever ornament that you want to choose for God, that's not him either. And whatever hobby you might want to fit in spiritually to your slice of the pie, that's not God either. God is Yahweh, Lord. He reveals himself. And the best thing that he can tell us to do is to worship him. Because he alone is the only appropriate center of our lives. He's true. One of the ways that he's true is that he's present. He's present. The prophets of Baal build their altar. They cry out. Elijah taunts them a bit. Eventually, it's Elijah's turn. Puts stones around, puts wood on, cuts up the bull, puts that on, digs a trench, has four jars filled with water three different times, dumps that on the altar. He prays to God. And then verse 38 says this, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You know, sometimes we can look at that passage and largely see it as just this amazing, powerful act. And absolutely, it's kind of like, wow, that's fire falling from heaven. But what's happening is not just this amazing display of fire. Often throughout the Old Testament, fire was actually symbolic of God's presence. The burning bush, there's fire, and the bush isn't consumed. God is present in the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 19, as the people of Israel gathered together to enter into a covenant relationship with God around Mount Sinai, here's what it says. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. 
And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. There's smoke, there's fire on Mount Sinai. It's the presence of God. In Leviticus chapter 9, as the tabernacle is christened as its beginning, people bring sacrifices. In verse 23 of Leviticus 9, here's what it says. <clears throat> Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came down from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions of the altar, and then all the people saw it. They shouted for joy and fell face down. I love that. Fire descends. The people shout for joy, and they fall face down. It's fire. God's presence is with them. Reminds me, Pentecost, disciples gathered, Acts chapter 2, 50 days after Jesus is raised from the dead, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, when the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. There's fire. Here's what I want to ask you. Does the presence of God mean anything to you? Is the presence of God, does that mean something to you? Does the presence of the Holy Spirit that comes on Pentecost, do you ever choose to not be present with something else in your life. Maybe it's technology. Maybe it's a TV show. I don't know what it is. Did you ever choose not to be present with something else so that you can be present with God? Do you ever choose to, to not be present and to sort of detach from something else that begs for your attention and keeps you busy in order to be fully present with the God who is fire? Friends, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, the fire of God's Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's not something you just are supposed to intellectually believe. That's, supposed, that's something you're supposed to meditate on, have faith on, allow yourself to be drawn into. And here's the deal with fire. Notice that fire is both incredibly, um, it, it draws you in and it also consumes if you watch any survivor show, what's the first thing they try to do? They try to know how to make a fire. Whether it's rubbing sticks, whether it's some other, they, they make fire. Why? Because you have to have fire in order to live. At the same time, fire will kill you if it's not in the right place. Fire has the sense of drawing us in. Fire gives us life, and yet fire will take life. Listen, friends, God's Holy Spirit it's the presence of fire. It's the presence of the Lord. Does his presence give you joy? As with the tabernacle in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 24, does God's presence simply give you a sense of delight? Do you sometimes take some moments and try to detach and be less present with other things that pull at you? So God, I want to take some moments to just be present with you. To be present with you is the fire of the Holy Spirit who teaches me and shows me the truth of the gospel and the goodness of God. Do you have time to be present with the God who is fire and the God who gives you joy? I'm going to ask Sam to come up, and as he does going to kind of walk through the last couple of sections and lead our way into communion. You know, God is true. God is present. But God is also severe. Verse 40, the fire descends. Then verse 40, then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. 
And we won't take time to sort that out too much, but I'll just simply say this. Um, these folks had entered into a covenant relationship with God. We'll take time to read the verses. Um, actually, I'll read one verse, Exodus 24, 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. They had committed themselves to following after God. Uh, they, they entered a covenant with God as their king and said, we will worship you upon penalty of death. They, they fully entered into that themselves. So it's a context in which their, their lives were taken. God's severe, friends, but he's also gracious. Elijah says to Ahab, who's still just got a rebellious heart, hey, start heading out, man, because it's going to rain. Elijah goes and he prays seven times and starts to rain. This severe God just overpouring with grace as well. It's crazy how it works. You know what struck me for the first time this morning? And it just this never struck me before. It's kind of cool when the Holy Spirit, I guess, does something like that. What struck me is that the prophets of Baal were killed in the valley because they violated the covenant. They violated it. They weren't worshipers of God as they had committed themselves to be. And yet 850 years later, the true prophet of God, who wasn't just a prophet, but was God himself in the person of Jesus, who kept the covenant fully, who lived every moment of his life in honor of the Father in heaven. This Jesus was not taken to a valley. He was led to the hill of Golgotha. And there he experienced the same penalty that the prophets of Baal did. The one who had perfectly kept the covenant. The one who lived perfectly righteously. The one whose life was a full expression of love and worship to the Father in heaven. He went up to the hill of Golgotha. And he was killed. John 19, 17, and 18. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others one on either side, and Jesus between them. Communion. It's about having a wafer and a cup of juice that represent the perfect, the perfect Lamb of God killed on Golgotha. Honestly, we all fall short of God's glory. We all deserve to be led into the valley with the prophets of Baal who were unfaithful to the Lord. It's where we should all be. The only one who's ever stepped foot on planet Earth who should not have been in that valley with the prophets of Baal is the person of Jesus. Jesus 
experienced that penalty on the hill of Golgotha. The only one who truly deserved to live is the one who was crucified, killed, took our penalty on him. And so when we take a wafer, when we take a cup of juice, we remember the one who totally fulfilled the Father's expectations and yet was killed so that we who fall far short of the Father's expectations can have the life of Jesus in us. It's not important for you to be a member of Southridge to participate in communion. What we do ask is that you have received Christ as your Savior. If you've never done that, now's a great time to simply say, God, thank you for sending Jesus, for taking, for him to take the penalty of my separation, my sin upon himself, so that I can be your son and daughter. That would be the perfect time to do that. If you're still processing that, or if you simply would prefer to remain seated during this period of time, it's totally fine. It's just, just feel free to hang out and, and for a few moments and, and think these things through. I'm going to invite sections at a time to get up and move to a station near you. There's some in the balcony. There's some up front. There's some in the aisle. Take a cup of juice and a wafer back to your seat. We'll take it together. There's some prepackaged elements as well. If you'd prefer that, uh, feel free to take these. Why don't we have this section, this section, if you guys would stand up, balcony, you can go. Take, take them back to your seat, and then we'll... The other sections can go. Matthew records, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not eat from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Listen, friends. Yahweh, the creator God, is the true God. He's present with us. He came himself in body and flesh in the person of Jesus. He's present with us through the Holy Spirit. Yahweh God is a severe God. He's not tame. 
He must judge that which is evil. But the beauty is he provides himself as the solution to his own severity. In his grace, he sends rain for the nation of Israel. In his grace, he comes to us in the person of Jesus. And he carries his cross to the hill of Golgotha. He takes on the penalty of our evil, our sin, and our darkness. Let's eat the bread and drink the cup. God, thank you that you are the one true God. You're the God of drought, fire, rain, provision. And most of all, you are the God of life. You are the God who gives up your life in the person of Jesus so that you can become our bread so that we can become your sons and daughters. Thank you that your mercy, your grace, your kindness, your faithfulness follows after us, not because of our goodness, but because of your grace expressed to us in Christ Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Stand and sing this song together.
love surrounds me, Jesus. It's surely love and mercy will follow. Surely love and mercy, your peace and kindness will follow me, will follow me. Surely love and mercy, your peace and kindness will follow me, will follow me. God of heaven, thank you that you are the true God. That you're the God of fire. You're the God of presence. You're the God of grace and provision. And thank you that that's ultimately expressed to us through our Lord and Savior in whose name we pray, the name of Jesus we ask it. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Amen. Our prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. God bless. Enjoy this beautiful day.